When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, we're Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and if you think you know about superheroes and comic books, think again. We got romance, we got action, romance. we got comedy, we got everything you need, man. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know for all your superhero needs. Uh, ro- I, I don't know about this romance, what part are you talking about? We've got all kinds of sketches, and then deep dives on top of that. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know! Alright, so come on down to su- wait, why did I say come on down? To Superhero Stuff You Should Know. Hello everyone, we're Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and if you think you know about superheroes and comic books, think again. We got romance, we got action, we got comedy, we got everything you need, man. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know for all your superhero needs. Uh, I, I don't know about this romance, what part are you talking about? We've got all kinds of sketches, and then deep dives on top of that. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know! All right, so come on down to su- wait, why did I say come on down? To superhero stuff you should know. Hey, horror movie night. This is Matt, uh, freshly home from Pop Rock and Horror Con. It was a blast. If you were following our Instagram story, you saw some of the fun that we were having there. Uh, I just want to give you guys a quick heads up. So this episode that we're dropping is a Cujo reunion panel that we did at Pop Rock and Horror uh, with Katie from Maze on Scream. And unfortunately, this and a few other things that we recorded on Friday have some real bad audio issues. Um, A lot of the other stuff that we'll drop from Pop Rock and Horror throughout this week will sound a lot better. But this was our first ever time recording straight out of a soundboard during a live uh, panel. And I'll just put it simple. I fucked up. I fucked up the sound. So... It's going to be a little hard to hear at times. It's going to be a little muddled, like the audio is blown out. And I just want you guys to know in advance that I apologize. But I still thought that, you know, you'd want to be able to hear as much of this panel as you could. And we did record two episodes of Horror Movie Night. I haven't listened to them yet, but there's a good chance that they also have the same type of audio issue. So I'm asking you guys to sound off. Would you want me to still release those episodes with this audio, or would you rather they kind of just be for those who attend at the panel? Uh, so send us some emails or just comment on our Facebook or Twitter and let us know. You know what? I still want to hear the bonus episode, or not bonus episodes, but the live panel episodes. Uh, they were for Return of Living Dead and Night of the Demons uh, with the Jersey Ghouls guesting on each episode. So. Sound off, let us know, but in the meantime, listen to this fantastic panel that we did uh, for the Cujo reunion, which, you know, again, I wish the audio was a little bit better, but we will definitely be at another pop rock and horror con in the near, well, not near future, in about a year, in the year future. So keep your eyes open for that and get ready, because I think that that convention has a real chance to be a big, big thing in the future. I'm one half of the moderators on this panel, and on my far left, I have... 
I'm Katie. I'm uh, part of the Mise on Scream podcast and also the other half of the panel. Of course, the stars here are going to be from my left to right. <laughs> we have Louis Teague, the director of Cujo. We have Danny Pinedo, the child star of Pintaro. Oh my gosh. Pintaro, Danny Pintaro. Well, I like to I do this all the time. I just want to point out that Katie literally was walking around for the last 30 minutes saying the names okay. over and over again. Over and over again. And I said, you I can handle this. Yeah. As you soon as I get on the mic, I mess everything up. You were wrong. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're not all perfect. <laughs> the next one should be Katie Williams. <laughs> you had to have been called that at least once before, right? Thousands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we have Wallace Dean here with us today. <laughs> the seminal D. Wallace, everybody. Let's give it really up this time. The far right to my far right is Daniel Hugh Kelly. Woo! We out of four. four. Three out of four. <laughs> you got my name right. It's <laughs> a pretty good record. So, I mean, we're all here to talk about Cujo, and I, I think that the story really kind of starts circa 1980 with Lewis directing Alligator, which grab Stephen King's attention. So I'd like to know a little bit about when did you know that Stephen King was a fan of Alligator and how did that lead to Cujo becoming a thing? Uh, I learned that Stephen King had seen Alligator when the uh, producer... Oh, is this yeah, working? Lift it up closer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the producer... <laughs> That's funny. It's funny that he's directing you now. <laughs> Okay. Take it away. All right, good. Uh, The producer, Dan Blatt, who we're going to talk about, best producer I ever worked with, uh, called me into the office and told me Stephen King had seen my uh, previous film, Alligator, and recommended me for the job. So Dan Blatt called me in at Warner Brothers, and uh, we talked and got along really well. And uh, as far as I was concerned, it was a done deal. And he called my agent, and they started uh, making a deal. But um, it turns out that the guy, oh, Warner Brothers somehow lost uh, the distribution of the film, and it went over to 20th Century Fox briefly. And the head of acquisitions at 20th Century Fox knew me back from the days when uh, I was an uncontrolled uh, drug addict and alcoholic. and. At this point, when I went in to see Dan Platt, I was sober at that point, but this guy knew me from the old days and didn't want me on the film, so they didn't hire me. They wouldn't sign the deal. They hired somebody else, and I'll let somebody else continue that story. Oh, yes, they hired Peter Medic. I learned something new at every time. Seriously, every time we do one of these, we go, what? Um, you should have known you were six at the time. You should have been very perceptive yeah, on stuff. Yeah. So uh, I didn't know all this. I didn't know that you'd, you know, I just thought Peter had always been on it. And so I arrived in Northern California and uh, immediately went to work and... Peter, whom is a really great director, ruling class and all that, but he didn't have the same vision. He thought that Donna should be in a see-through blouse without a bra, and I went, didn't quite sign up for that kind of film. I this, did. <laughs> this is uh, why I took the job. I'm supposed to be a mom trying to save her kid, and so I went to Dan Blood, and he went, "He what?" <laughs> and I said, "So nobody had a meeting about this, right?" And so the powers that be came to decide that um, it might be better. Peter didn't direct the film. And so then Dan went back to you. You're looking like you don't know the story. I didn't know about the see-through blouse, otherwise I would have kept that in the film. 
You all would have been so incredibly disappointed. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. This is my favorite panel so far. Yeah. Already, we're just starting. I tell you, I tell you where I hope this is going. This conversation is that I mean, when I was driving out here from the airport this morning. Uh, with uh, Miguel Nunez, who's somewhere around. Is he here? No. He's at the return living dead. Uh, anyway, we were talking about the whole idea that uh, there are no mistakes in God's universe, that the universe is unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to. And uh, I don't know if that's true, but I do know that it's a great strategy to adopt. And I, that's how I try to practice my life. And if there's anything that's ever happened in my life that would convince me that things fall together the way they're supposed to, it's this film because of the way it kept falling apart and getting back together again. And every time it got back together again, it became stronger. Yeah. And that's why I feel that this is my, this is my favorite film of all the films that I've done. Mine too. So to back, to back up with the story, so... Uh, <laughs> The 20th Century Fox didn't want me, uh, and so Dan called me to uh, tell me how sorry he was. Then he went ahead and hired Peter Maydak, and Peter Maydak uh, started doing the film, and then uh, 20th Century pulled out of the project for some reason, which I don't know. Uh, and it was I don't have that story. And it was, it was drifting around Hollywood. It was a, a package without any money, without a distributor. And at that point, I was doing a film for Dino De Laurentiis, and I heard that there was no backing for the film. So Dino, who knew how disappointed I was when I had lost the job, said, Luis, you, you must do this a film. He said, you call it this a Dana Blatt, and you tell him, I, I put up the money for the film. So I called Dan, and I, I said, Dan, uh, Dino wants to finance the film and release it. And Dan said, oh, shit, I just made a deal with Warner Brothers 10 minutes ago. So, anyway. Dear God, did you know this story? I did not. <laughs> did so, you? Oh, no, no, how would I know? So, question. <laughs> yes. Were you already attached when all the... Yeah, I never knew it might not go. <laughs> I was like... Okay, that's another example of how things are turning out so f magnificently. Yeah. During... During the point where I left the film, was taken off the film, and Peter Maydak was hired, Peter and Dan are responsible for this cast, this fantastic cast. <laughs> so when I, what, I, what happened is that uh, Peter started the film, and everybody was unhappy with what he was doing. The cast was unhappy. The studio was unhappy. Dan was unhappy. And I just finished this film that I was doing for Dina De Laurentiis, and Dan called me and said, we're th thinking of making a change. Would you be available and interested? And I said, absolutely, because I gotta tell you, all this time, I knew in my bone marrow, I swear to God, yeah. that this was the right project for me. It was something I should be doing. So and Dan, you had done a lot of work, pre-work pre on it too, hadn't you? Not a lot. I, I've done a lot of, put a lot of thought into uh, what we would do with the script, but Peter did all the work. He did all the casting and found locations. And <laughs> okay. We're all learning stories today. <laughs> What's new whenever we get together? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking over at Katie, because she, so Katie did a lot of research for this. I, I did, well, I read the book way younger than I should have, and something I keep I keep defaulting to uh, Lewis here, because that book and the adaptation of the book, I, it, it, there's so much meat that wasn't in it, but you guys captured so much of what made the film what it became in that mother-son dynamic, but also the whole family dynamic and how difficult like that entire piece can be and how it pieces together. And both Dee um, and Daniel, I would love to hear from you guys about creating, um, I mean, and Danny, the, the family that you had created. And it was a difficult family to portray, and there was a lot in the book, and did you read the book, and where did that fall into it? And Danny, you couldn't read, but we understand. Um, <laughs> anyway, speak to that if you would. Who wants it first? It's the funny part is, is I go by Daniel now and he goes by Danny. Isn't that funny that we we flip flopped on that? No, I'm no. Not changing. <laughs> I'm definitely not the best to answer this one for sure. 
I'm too young. Well, he's got. His I own. think one of the things that kind of gets overlooked here, um, oftentimes, is somewhat of the the confusion and <laughs> that was going on at the beginning of this, and how great a testament it is for a director to walk into a situation really? on a set. We were already on location. We had already shot, at least he had, some major early scenes, and for a new director to walk into that situation. He did not cast it, um, and he was, it was basically dropped in his lap. And were it not for Lewis, I don't think any of us would be sitting here today. He was so gentle. He's a very yes, intelligent man. That's a great word. And he, he wanted to do it as best as he possibly could. And I, I can't emphasize enough um, the impact he had, not only on me, but certainly on Dean yeah. and Daniel, um, just how uh, in those incredibly difficult scenes. I, I, I can't imagine doing it. Okay, but wait a minute. I didn't shoot anything with Peter, did I, before? I don't know, because we uh, threw out all the footage and started again from scratch. Oh, maybe that's what... Because I, I have no memory. I remember Dan coming to me and saying he was so excited about what you had shot the night before. I remember that. With Something Peter where with they Lewis. went down the streets. Maybe it was just opening oh, that, that shots. The big opening shot where they went down the, the streets. Cameras. Somebody, you, I, think I remember hearing that. Somebody was telling us the story about the. He spent this tons of money filming an opening shot that was never going to be in the movie. Right. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <laughs> I, I, all I remember about working with Peter is I said no. I'm. I'm not going to shoot this in a way that my grandmother would drop over dead in Kansas. I'm not doing that. Not, this is not the, the film I saw. This is not the kind of actress. This is not what I do. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have done all the rest of the howlings. So, <laughs> um, but I agree with everything Danny said about Lewis. Lewis. I remember one day I, I just lost it on the set because the pressure and the emotion constant was so great. I mean, I lost it. And I went to my trailer about 10 minutes later. Lewis, I don't know if you remember this. You knocked on the door. And, and I'm standing up there, and Lewis goes, Are you okay? I'm sorry if I did something. <laughs> I looked down at him, and he was just so genuine and so kind, and I burst into tears. I said, it was all me. I'm just stressed. <laughs> but I, I don't think we would have ever gotten through the movie without that kindness and that balance. You had such balance, Lewis, because it was relentless, you guys. It was... I think the hardest thing, it, all of well, for sure, that I've ever done. I was in L.A. Sure. I left. I didn't have to do the dog scene, so <laughs> <laughs> I lucked out. Hey, you, I took one look at that dog. It was the biggest dog I ever saw in my life. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I couldn't imagine what Dee and Lewis and Daniel had gone through doing it. And it's that A lot. This dog was frightening. It was well, big. Give the stories. There was really no dog. It was all CGI. No, don't you dare. <laughs> well, well, the first thing is, is it was winter. We filmed it in winter. California. California. In California. So there are heaters everywhere. So it's not actually summer and the sweating. And none of that's happening. Wait, but you have to set this up. Because we're in the car, and I look over at Danny. We're waiting for him to get ready to shoot the scene. And here's Danny. <laughs> right and I said oh my god this kid and I was freezing but you know so we got that you don't remember this and we and I went to you and I said please can't they figure out a way to put a heater in the front of the car you know for us so they did but everybody good acting huh you think we're dying at the <laughs> right uh, and then there's 
you know, all the makeup stuff that's going on. There's that. And then there's... No, you have to explain that. Well, I'm just setting up the things and then you, you fill them in. There's a huge dog six inches away from you. I mean, that's all you need to Yeah, there's yeah. that. Yeah, yeah but, ridiculous. but the way all the foam is, is egg whites, right? <laughs> and so everybody had to be like this ready to go because as soon as they put the egg whites on we had to call action because the dogs are looking everything off of them right you know so there's me and there's six right you were six six yeah. six year old kid a dog a trainer and lewis if those things didn't work so you you had to be on every single solitary moment because when the kid and the dog worked together, they were going to print it whether I looked like shit or not. <laughs> they were going to print it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, thought, I mean, you're, you're filling in all the gaps. And this is a hard shoot, yeah. And uh, even I remember that. I mean, there's not a lot that I remember because it was... What you did when I asked you about if you were all right to do that? Oh, the, the, um, the, yeah, so this, yeah, no, I, so everybody thinks that I was really traumatized by the movie. When I first saw Lewis again years ago, that was the first thing he said to me. He said, Are you all right? Did you come out of that okay? <laughs> uh, and every, every shot, every take, after every take, Dee would stop and say, Now, you know it's not real and it's fake and it's just the dogs are really nice. They're Always just. Always the mother. Right? <laughs> and a lot of people say to this day that they feel like I was traumatized. And I would just turn to her and be like, Okay, are we going to do that one again or are we moving on to the next one? Oh I think but, their memory is very selective because I was. <laughs> me? I remember one day where you were supposed to cry, and I was trying to figure out how to explain this to Danny. He's five years old. I thought you were five. And I needed to get, needed to get you to cry, and I started yelling at you like I was really angry. And up to that point, I had been so fatherly, I think, to you. And I started getting really angry at you. You don't remember that? No, that I don't remember. I'm glad you forgot. I'm kind of glad I don't remember that, honestly. Me too, Lewis. I don't know. What What did I do? And then Lewis gave him a backhand and he cried. <laughs> wow. What did this turn into? Your answer would have been different when he asked if that movie traumatized you, if you remember that. I mean, part. really. What did you do? Oh, no, the way... Oh, my God. <laughs> so they had sort of taught me how to do it, the, the convulsing part. But then my mom was there, um, and, you know, Dee and my mom were pretty close during the film because it was just a matter of taking care of both of your children, your, your son. Um, and my mom, when I was a child, baby baby, in the hospital, I actually did that. I went into convulsions and swallowed my tongue. And she was trying to explain to me, no, no, when you were little, you did it like this. And, and I went back to you guys and I said, my mom said I did it like this. Well, actually, what he, I said, are you sure you're going to be okay, you know, to do this? And he looked at me and said, oh, I did it when I was little. <laughs> and I, I went to Lewis, I said, I think he's fine. <laughs> so what was the process of doing the adaptation from the book to screen? Because as Katie pointed out, there are a lot of changes, but I think that on the wide scale, a lot of people do consider this if not one of the best Stephen King adaptations, one of the few that actually improves upon the novel. I think even King has said that he prefers yeah. the movie ending to his book. Yeah, and it only took two years, I believe, right? <laughs> two years? Like, it, the book was published in 81, and you guys released in 83. Mm. I don't know. Uh, when, I went to meet, <laughs> when I went to meet Dan Blatt for that first meeting, uh, Stephen King had already written a script uh, in which <coughs> Danny survived and uh, Stephen said at that point, you can't have, it's a movie, not a book. You can't have the, the kid die. And so that, that was a given from the very I beginning. I didn't know this story either because Dan Black came to me and said, so Dee, what do you think? You know, we're thinking because in the book the kid dies. I went, what? <laughs> you can't have the kid die. You can't have him 
well, so what do you think? And I thought everybody was taking a vote. All this time, I thought I had something to do with it. See well, there? <laughs> Stephen King wrote a script in which uh, Danny survives. And then, but Stephen King's script was terrible. It was awful. He had the this end podcast. He is going off across uh, America. Anyone who's seen Maximum Overdrive already knows that his screenplay was probably terrible. And he had, he had invented all this new dialogue for the characters that wasn't half as good as the dialogue that was in the book. So when we brought in another writer to rewrite the script, she did. She went back pretty much and did a cut and paste job and took most of the dialogue from the book where the dialogue <coughs> was very realistic and motivated. Oh. <coughs> but then when I came on to the film, the script, I, lo I looked at the script and I saw it was going to be at least an hour too long and we had to start eliminating subplots. And the writer at that time did not want to make the changes that I wanted to make. So I brought in a friend of mine, Don Dunaway, to rewrite it. And so the, the ending was actually up for grabs several, even though Stephen King had said it would be best for the boy to survive, the ending still was up for grabs when it was rewritten. Uh, each time it was rewritten. The ending was up for grabs the uh, day before we were going to shoot it, to tell you the truth. Not whether he was going to die, Dan was going to die or not, but we didn't really know quite how to end the film. You know, we wound up ending it with a freeze frame of you coming yeah. out the door. <clears throat> There's one thing I could go back and reinvestigate. It would be how we end the movie. How else would you have ended it? Uh, I don't have the answer yet. I see. <laughs> it's going to take another 10 years to come up with something. Well, I think you made the right choice going with the Danny Live ending regardless, because I can't imagine, I don't think the movie would have been the success it was if oh, Danny I died. Agree. And And Stephen King, the reason he wrote it that way was he said he never got more hate mail at anything that he's ever done than when he killed the kid at the end of Cujo. Yeah, because you get so attached to him. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah, it's well, and then this was the 80s. Yeah. You know, you don't kill a kid or a dog. We just killed a kid in his previous movie. You threw him in a pool with a gator. <laughs> well, the reason for Danny alive was not to placate the audience. It was to set up a sequel in which Danny becomes rabid and terrorizes the entire state of Maine. <laughs> Let's do it. Do you, is that a Pet cemetery crossover? <laughs> There's still time to make that happen. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm actually curious. Was there ever a time when the sort of subplot of the dog being the... I don't actually even know the whole thing. The dog in the book, the dog is... Yeah, so the dog is actually a reincarnation of a serial killer from a previous Stephen King story. There was and there was none of it. Um, it was glossed over. But I, that was a conscious decision. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't glossed over. We made a decision uh, to Dan and I to eliminate all the supernatural elements, including uh, having a monster in the closet, and tell it on a realistic level. Uh, so yeah, that was which is more frightening. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, for those who didn't hear, Dee just said I think it's more frightening that way. And I, I think absolutely. I think that that's what took me out of the Cujo book was the supernatural. That, but it's what kept me in for the movie. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to ask a question because I watched several interviews for this and uh, to, to prepare, and I've heard multiple answers throughout the years. Oh no. <laughs> so, anywhere from 6 to 13, how many dogs were there? 13. There were 13 dogs. Six. There were six dogs. I need a consensus today. I'm going to trust the one that wasn't six years old at the time of filming. <laughs> but there, there were several St. Bernards, okay? And then... I'll hold it. Thank you, darling. <laughs> and then, you know, there was a black lab, and there was this, and there was that, and then there was the guy in the dog suit. And so, you know, there were, go ahead, Lewis, there were 
12 uh, or 13. Danny, Danny's confusion is understandable because yeah. there were six nice dogs and five bad ones. <laughs> oh, okay. And I, well, I wasn't allowed to have any interaction with them at all. So, yeah. So they, they, it could have all been the same dog as far as I know. It really is just them telling me that there were that many. Because they were so friendly that if we had any contact with them, they wouldn't have. Yeah, you know, St. Bernard's are just babies. Just, and I love dogs, and I just wanted to love on them all the time. And Carl Miller, our brilliant, brilliant uh, trainer, said, oh, no, Dee, because uh, they'll bond with you, and then blah, 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 blah. Right, so they, Carl actually slept with them in the barn, right? And Yes, and the way we work with the dogs, and the reason why we had it, I think there were 11 or 12, actually, uh, St. Bernard's, plus the Labrador Retriever, plus uh, a man in a dog suit and a mechanical dog head. But I try to give... Carl Miller, the animal trainer, as much advance notice as possible of what I specifically wanted to do uh, with a dog in a particular scene. What it would have to, whether it would have to jump on the hood or whether it would have to smash into a door, whatever it was. And then Carl would have a couple of weeks to take all the dogs out and rehearse with them until they could find a couple of them that were best at that particular task. And that's why we had so many, <coughs> yeah. many of them. Each one had a different skill or a different strength. And you couldn't overwork them. You could overwork me, <laughs> but you couldn't overwork the dogs. So all of them were trained to do different tricks, you know. And so on action, they call action, and Carl would go, dig, dig for your toy, right? And so they would go, rah, 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 rah. And from here up, they looked really ferocious, but they were all wagging their tails, having a great time because it was all big, you know, like fun game for them. And um, um, where was I going? I don't know. That was that was the craziest part to me. Was uh, so in the car, in in like the the footwell of the car was like a rat that had a fake rat or some sort of whatever that had scent on it and they were just trying to get the rat they could care I mean everybody was terrified that they were going to get in the car and do and you know hurt us in some way but it happened once and the dog did went for the rat and they were pulling us out everybody's freaking out and run come on be and I remember just sort of being pulled out of there I remember that. I don't remember. And the dog was like chewing on the rat. I was laughing. I would have thought I would have gone for you. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember in my first that time. part. I just remember being pulled out of the car and like pointing and laughing at the dog. It was really. It's a good memory. So, how much work did you do to play my my husband? Oh, yeah. Let's get to that. Well, obviously, I saved them by driving up in a convertible Jaguar. <laughs> See, I, I, that is another thing, you know, and I didn't realize this at the time they were shooting it, but Lewis has a real sense of humor. Oh, yeah. And each one of these characters, save for the child, is flawed in many ways. And in Vic's way, I mean, he was so preoccupied with this commercial that he was doing. Um, nothing wrong here or whatever. And I remember when I first saw the commercial on set, Lewis played it for me, I was incredibly disappointed that it wasn't this, I don't know, outrageous kind of car commercial. It was, as I recall, and I haven't seen it in a long time, it was like a cartoon. And yet this is what Vic was so obsessed with, to the exclusion of his wife. Obviously his wife is having problems. His kid is definitely having problems. And he has this silly-ass commercial that was kind of a joke. And then when, it, when you know, I, again, I haven't seen the movie in many years, but I, I remember when I did see it, I didn't go to the premiere or something I was working in. I, I saw the movie, and I remember the audience laughed when I hopped in my Jaguar to go save them, save them after they're getting in a, I don't know, what kind of Ford Pinto I gave you. It, the dog absolutely destroyed, and I'm going up there in a, in a convertible Jaguar. And I, I remember then, it was like, oh, that's funny. 
That's good, Lewis. That, that was good. There were little things like that that I really appreciated in the film. And again, I mean, with Danny and Dee in that car and that huge dog, and, and there was one cubby who was, the, I swear to gosh, the biggest darn dog I ever saw. And I had a real problem when I was a kid. I was terrified of dogs. I wasn't going to near these things. And when it, if it got in the car, I mean, they're talking about pulling each other out. I would have been in the hills. <laughs> I would have left everybody. I readily admit that. This thing was so big. Yeah. And yeah, they and, and again, you think of them with a the little barrel around their neck coming to save you in the snow. <laughs> it's not like that. It, it wasn't to me anyway. I mean, yeah, there might be gentle dogs, but they're not the brightest things in the world, obviously. And uh, was Cubby the one that was on me? You don't know. Whoa. Oh, it was huge. <laughs> this dog was huge, and and the medic um, had put him under. And then they put him on top of me. Well, you know, I'm like into the scene and getting ready to be hysterical. And they put this dog on me. And I, his face is right here. And I hear... Uh. And I look up at Lewis and say, he's not going to wake up, is he? <laughs> and the medic goes, no, 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 he's, he's under. He's just moaning. And so we're getting ready to shoot, and we roll, and Lewis says, can you lift him up and down, D, like you're, like you're fighting him? And I, Let so that I sleeping dog die. <laughs> the St. Bernard, I'm bitch-busting, which is at that point like 150 pounds of dead weight <laughs> and it wasn't hard to do that scene because the whole every time I would move him he'd go hey. <laughs> right uh, let that sleeping that? dog lie man <laughs> and you lift him up and down it's very glamorous though being an actor <laughs> so okay, what did we never talked about in all the uh, interviews we've done as I wanted to ask Danny about uh, the one of the reasons the movie turned out so well is that everybody was 100% committed to this project yep Daniel here was five and was you know just being himself and in a brilliant kind of way the was uh, channeling this character from some <laughs> other place in the universe. Really? I mean, I think so. And Danny, uh, I remember when we first met within the first few days, you know, we went aside and I wanted to talk to you about the character and how he saw the character. And he started rattling off all the biographical statistics of this character. You had done an incredible amount of homework to prepare for it. You want to talk about that? Well, I had. I, 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 prior to that, I mean, this was my first fate major or first feature film. I mean, prior to that, it was all television and, and theater in New York and, and regional repertory theaters around the country. So I was very honored. I was hired by Peter Medak. Um, I was asked to do it. I don't even recall if I auditioned, and I, I was very excited about it. I was not a Stephen King fan. Um, I remember getting the book and making prodigious notes in the book. And that w turned out to be a mistake in many ways because, as I subsequently learned in, a, in the movie business, writing a book is very, very different than writing a screenplay. And it requires a very different talent. And many of you here probably have that talent. I think you're born with it. Um, but it, 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 it requires, uh, like, and Lewis sees that very, very easily. I did not. I thought the book should be the script, much like Katie was mentioning things were different in the film. And I do remember that there were a number of scripts, one of which was the Stephen King script itself, which Dan Black gave me and told me it was unreadable, and he was absolutely right. It, it just as a screenplay from a novel, and it was shocking to me that a writer of Stephen King's talent, it was the first Stephen King book I had read, and really enjoyed it and wanted to, to, to honor the book and do it exactly as the book was meant to be. And that is not, it does not happen in, in the film industry. It's rare. Mm -hmm. And uh, with their subsequent struggles over the script that everyone was dealing with, um, it's kind of amazing to me 
looking back on it 45 years later or whatever, that it came out as good as it did. I mean, it, and I don't mean to compare this, but as I understand it, Casablanca was written the day they were shooting it. And it's, it's just, it requires such an, an enormous talent and, and an ensemble kind of working together to make the script happen. But yeah, I had done a lot of work. I was afraid Lewis was going to fire me after Peter got fired. And thank God he didn't, or much to his regret, he didn't. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it was a scary thing for me. And then I left. And as I said, I did not have to deal with the hardcore scenes. I remember after I came back, I had never been down to L.A. before. And I thought, well, I got two weeks off while they shoot these dog scenes. I pitied both Dee and Daniel that they were going to have to go through this. I mean, I knew enough that this was going to be difficult, and it was. And I remember walking back uh, into the hotel we were staying in in Santa Rosa, and Lewis happened to be in the lobby. And as usual, very sweet, how are you, good to see you, but you could tell it aged him. You could tell that he had been through the ringer for the last two and a half, three weeks. And I mean that sincerely. He's since gotten much better looking now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I think that's really interesting for them to understand, too. Because Daniel, Danny, broke everything down, figured everything out. My technique is just the opposite. But it's definitely a technique. I, I didn't break things down. And I didn't figure out how I was going to play anything. I wanted to just be in there and be in the moment. And whatever happened to Donna was real. I didn't want to be de figuring out what happened with Donna. But it's a definite technique that my mentor, Charles Conrad, would teach me. But what I think so interesting for a lot of you who want, want to direct and and be more in the business is how two people can come from entirely different point of views. My husband, who played my lover in the film, Chris, he works like Danny. He breaks everything down and makes notes. And, and I remember in The Howling, Joe Dante asked us, I said, well, okay, this is the big fight scene. You guys rehearsed it last night, right? And Chris said, my leading lady doesn't rehearse. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, was that weird or difficult as a director? I never asked you that. No, I didn't know how to use a lot of rehearsal time at that point. I started making films for Roger Corman, uh, who never gave us any time uh, to make film. You had to go yeah. in and just shoot uh, fast and print, take one and move on. Uh, so I love the fact that I was working with actors who were prepared or either mentally or psychologically just to do it. And I want to get back to Peter Mayhat for a second because it's kind of interesting. A couple of years ago, a guy from Australia wrote a book about the making of Cujo. Uh, Lee Gambit. Lee Gambit, yeah. And Lee called me to tell me that he interviewed Peter Maydak. And at the end of the interview, he asked Peter if he'd seen the film. And Peter said, no, I haven't. You know, it was a, uh, you know, left the whole experience left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't want to see the film. Uh, was it any good? And Lee said, yeah, it's really good. So apparently Peter Maydak looked at the film and then called me, and we got together for lunch. No kidding. And we talked about the whole experience. It was kind of interesting because he contributed so much. I mean, this he, he cast you guys, and that was maybe one of the most important choices to make. That was one of the most important choices to make. Yeah, there were a lot of great people that worked on this film, and I, since I jumped in and hit the ground running and had to start shooting about two or three days after I arrived there, I brought in some of my own people. Uh, I brought in uh, Neil Macklis, a, an editor who later went on to win an Academy Award for Dancing with Wolves, and he was, he was fantastic. And Jan de Bont, the cinematographer, was a great cinematographer, most hardworking guy I've ever met. He went on to become a famous director. He directed Twister and uh, Speed. You know, really good with action kind of stuff. So anyway, it was really great to get together with Peter and 
thank him for you know casting you guys you know all the so many choices were made in pre-production that I didn't have to make because I didn't have the time so and uh, we have a microphone in the center of the room if anybody has questions um, feel free to start to line up at that microphone but Katie if you have anything else that you want to ask while we wait for them to line up I would love to open up the floor. I know that there's someone in the front row who has some things she'd like to say. <laughs> she said so before. Yes. Calling you out. Yeah, I absolutely am. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, I'll bring you you can do it there. <laughs> do I really have to? I can hear you. <laughs> Diva! <laughs> no, shy. <laughs> okay. No, I just wanted to say that Dee Wallace, you are one of the greatest actresses around. I loved you in Cujo. I loved you in E.T. And the howling, that scene at the end when you turned into that wolf was amazing. But you're all great because movies. The Cujo was a great movie. I read the book. I loved the movie. The movie was excellent. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. I can bring it to other people if you want. <laughs> really? Nobody Nothing? has a question? No one has a question. Dogs or anything? I mean, I do want to actually ask if so... Hello. Hi. Quick question. When you guys were making the film in production, did you guys realize that you were making something extraordinary, that you were making something that was going to be long-lasting like it is? I don't think you ever know that. I don't think you ever think about that. Do you? I don't, I don't know if anybody, while we're doing the film, that ever thinks about that. And I, I know when I did 10 for Blake Edwards, I said, oh, Mr. Edwards, this is going to be such a big hit. And he said, honey, if we knew what made a hit, we'd have a lot more of them. <laughs> you know, I just think everybody goes in to do the best they can do. And sometimes you win, a lot of times you don't. Well, I think about it a lot. And really? I, I worry, I used to worry a lot about my career choices. It's wasted energy, but I did that. And but I, as I said earlier, I felt in my bone marrow that this was a project I was supposed to do, and I liked everything about it. And I, you know, while we were shooting it, and when I started looking at footage, I liked it all, and really had high hopes. But then I got on a plane when we finished shooting in Mendocino, and went back to L.A. And when I arrived at LAX, my limo was not there so I hopped in a cab to go home and the cab driver asked me where are you coming from? I said Mendocino, what were you doing up there? Making a movie. Oh yeah, what was the movie about? Oh, it was about a rabid dog that terrorizes a woman in a car and he's, there was a pause and he says, shit, they make a movie about anything, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> and at that point I thought uh oh, <laughs> if that's the reaction Shit, they yeah. made a movie about anything. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Keeps you humble. That's a great story. <laughs> well, and it's funny because when you look at the movies we make now, I mean, they will, will make a movie about anything. Um, speaking to that, if there was an adaptation, you want to be. Okay. Never mind. We can talk about it. But I'm just saying, if there's something that you'd like to be in, what would it be? Oh, oh I thought you were going to ask if we could do like a Cujo remake. No. No. I am not a remake fan. I'm asking about something that maybe you've read or seen or a media that you would like to see and be in. Or you can just direct it or write it. Any part of production, really. I want to play a nun. <laughs> I don't know why I want to play a nun. I always wanted to play a nun that was tormented and looking for the truth. Mm. Somebody write it. They'll do a movie about anything, so come on. <laughs> I, sorry, I, I actually have two screenplays. Um, one that I I am commissioned to be written for my daughter and myself, Gabrielle Stone, called Blackbird. J.T. Molnar did the script. It's brilliant. 
And, um, and we're shopping another script right now also called Spilled Milk. Anybody read the book? It's a bestseller on the Internet. And um, we've optioned that, and Gabrielle's going to direct it. Oh, great. Cool. Very good. Which, by the way, really quickly, her book comes out the end of June. It's called Eat, Pray, FML. <laughs> it's going to help a lot of people. Please, everybody, support it. Do you have these that are <laughs> I think for me, you'd have to ask my husband. He's the one who's got this list <laughs> of things. God, you'd be so good at that, Dan. You shouldn't figure out getting in. No, though. <laughs> no, no. But then, but then he's yeah. so good you should act more. Do something with me. I would love to. I would I would love to. I would absolutely love to. So we have a nun, a seminary student. Danny? Oh. Um, we're, we're, we're putting together this movie. Let's go. Well it it wouldn't be the priest, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, oh my gosh. I do believe in having a good time. Uh, it, it, you know, it isn't so much something that I would want to do, and I don't know. I know I'm sure this is not healthy. But there, as an actor, when you're younger, you don't realize that you're in an age group where you only... Though that age group is, only, is going to be your only chance to play certain roles. And I'm speaking specifically in theater. And I never, it never occurred to me. And I would have loved to, I mean, I had, I had done Brick and Cat on a Hot Tin's Roof. I had done both Jamie and Edmund on, in Long Day's Journey. I had done roles that I was kind of age right for, but never thought about it. Until you get older and you realize that those great roles, whether it be Hamlet or, I don't know, there, there's so many of them, that you are not right for, you cannot do, and you pass that opportunity up that. So that's why I would encourage everybody here, regardless of your chosen profession, to don't, don't let just opportunities pass and think, well, it'll come, come around to you tomorrow or something. You got to go get it. You got to do it. You got to be somewhat disciplined, which I have not known for, but you have to really, you got to do it. And I, I'll say another thing, you know, after the experience on Cujo, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy for, for any of us, uh, for different levels. None, obviously, much more difficult for Lewis, Danny, and Daniel, and, um, and Dee. But I learned after that show, uh, it was within a few months after I left, I, I agreed to do a pilot for, with Brian Keith because I always admired his work. And I learned so much from Brian about just friggin' relaxing, moron. Have fun with it. Yeah. Enjoy it. You do not have to show up with every line memorized to the article in the sentence. You can relax and have fun and hopefully make some people enjoy it. And that, th th it was such a dichotomy from what I had entered into Cujo with. Because when you're doing theater, you get a script that's been changed. It's a classic. You don't change the words. You, you, you find out the motivation and you work on it. You rehearse it and, for six weeks. And that is obviously not what happens in film. And it was such a, a counterbalance to what I experienced working with Brian Keith in Hardcastle McCormick, where it was just, let's have fun. So we got to the point where I turned to him. I'd say, Brian, I'm going to leap in this sports car, but I'm going to do something. And he said, okay. Go ahead, he's a former Marine. And he's, you know, go ahead. So I'd run out of the house to go catch bad guys, and I'd leap over the car and fell down, and they stole it, and they put it in a movie but with Barringer. But uh, as soon as I did it, Brian, as he slowly got into this silly sports car, said, who do you think you are, Earl Flynn? And they kept it. And I got a call, and, you know, the director came to me and said, come on, let's do that again. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do it again, because Brian had taught me, if you give him another chance to shoot it, they'll, they'll, they'll use that take, so don't do it again. They have to use that take. they got to get you from the house to the car. And, I, I mean, it was just one of the many things I learned. And, and so the producers and everybody was calling me and upset about that I wouldn't do another take, and they have to use this stupid scene where I fell over the car and fell on the street. And Brian made that comment, and he didn't know what I was going to do. Who do you think you are, Earl Flint? And it's in next year, it was in the, it was in the opening credits. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? So whatever you're doing, have fun with it. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. You know? Yeah, really. It's better what to put it. Yeah. You know, that, that scene, we got a long time. Helping the mother. That scene where uh, Danny starts crying, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, you know, and I turn around and I just lose it. And I said, well, I'll get you, your father! Right? And Dan Black comes to me the next day and says, Dee, we saw the dailies and we think you should take a look at it because we're afraid that people aren't going to like you. They're not going to like the character. And I went in and looked at it and I said, if you take this out, you're crazy. Every parent in the world has felt that way. <laughs> and it's one of the, the scenes in the movie that all the critics talked about. Yeah. But, you know, you, again, you have to trust that that instinct is right. You just, because otherwise it, yours or somebody else's head gets in, you know, and then you start doubting and what if and then, mm -hmm. and then you lose the raw realness of the moment. It's a good story. All right, well, oh. are there any moments for either of you in the film that made the final cut or didn't that you enjoyed the most shooting? Like any scene or? you know, anything <laughs> that was your favorite moment of the film? I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. No, I... I, I, I. It's in L.A. It's in L.A. I, I, think, for, I think for me, the, the, the scene I have the most memories of is the house at the end, uh, being on that table and having Dee oh. giving me mouth-to-mouth -mouth and all of that stuff. That... I have the most memories of that, so for me, that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, because it's the most physical uh, connection that we have throughout, and it's just so, like, real, and it was so scary, too. Like, that was one of the scenes for me that was actually hardest to do because it was cold, and the table was covered in milk, and there was this, I don't know, it, that one just really got me. Yeah, yeah. well, and it... It had been so hard for us to get it anyway because they couldn't get a dog to come through the window and we only had one, right, we had one shot and we had, what, three cameras that day come in because we only had one try. Carl said, you only get one try. The dog's only going to come through the window one time. At least that's the way I remember it. And, yeah, that. but, you know, the... I don't think I could pick a movie that, I mean, a moment out of that movie... Um, the th the moment that scared me the most was when I broke the window because I wasn't supposed to be able to break the window <laughs> and um, you know so Lewis said well just hit it as hard as you can D because we're going to shoot it in slow motion so it has to look like you're really trying to break the window well you know the adrenaline and everything that goes through an actor and so I think it's the third try the window breaks and this is literally what was going on inside me because I, I didn't hear cut I think everybody went holy shit right <laughs> and I didn't hear cut and so this side of my brain that was still D was going oh my god oh my god what am I supposed to do I don't hear cut and 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 I'm supposed to drag Danny out because we rehearsed what was going to happen all the way through and this part of my brain was going because it was Karen going get him out get him out you gotta get him to the house the dogs are gonna come get him out wait a minute but there's broken glass you can't get him out get him out right so I was supposed to what? I'm listening. Oh, <laughs> I was supposed to drag him across the glass, you know, and this part of my head's going, no, no, you can't drag him. You know, he's a kid and there's glass. So you see me do this stupid waddle out of, this, out of the car so that the kid, you know, and I'm, and I'm running up the, the stairs and by the time I get to the house, I hear cut. Which is great that we kept going because 
looks awesome on film. And then Dan Black comes up and says, oh, gosh, dear, are you okay? Well, no, I cut my arm and, you know. And so he looks at me and he says, oh, my God, you're hurt. Um, you think you could do one more before we go to the hospital because we're losing the light? <laughs> do you remember that? No, I don't. You don't remember that? No. We didn't shoot another take. Huh? We didn't shoot another take. I think we shot one more of me running up to the car. I'm running. Okay, yeah. Yeah. If you um, if you watch the movie again and you slow, if you pause it, if you pause it right at that part, you'll see that the gun that she was holding, the plastic of the gun broke off and the metal part of a gun is what hits the glass. I watched this once because I wanted to see how you did it. And so the metal gets exposed and you see the plastic piece sort of go spiraling off and it it, it hits your arm. And I think no, it was the, plas no. the plastic part of the gun. Yeah. My arm also goes through the glass. Yeah. Again, very, you know, fun being an activist. <laughs> well, we can pretty much reminisce all day, but that's I unfortunately know. the end of our hour. But they're signing all weekend, so you have plenty of time to go and get more stories and more questions and everything. But thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. Hello everyone, we're Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and if you think you know about superheroes and comic books, think again. We got romance, we got action, romance. we got comedy, we got everything you need, man. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know for all your superhero needs. Uh, ro I, I don't know about this romance, what part are you talking about? We've got all kinds of sketches, and then deep dives on top of that. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know! Alright, so come on down to wait, why did I say come on down? To Superhero Stuff You Should Know. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.